Welcome back to Your Creativity, Dylan on the mic. It's Friday the 13th, and it's going a lot better than I was expecting it to being Friday the 13th, because I think the last Friday the 13th was around the time uh, COVID was really hitting back in March. So here we go. Hopefully things improve there. We'll maybe talk about it later in one way or another. But anyway, <laughs> I'm rambling. Uh, we've I like got it. Bryce Prescott here. He is a comedian, a podcaster, and a performance coach. Um, Bryce, break down what each one of those are and kind of your your style in each one because you've got a okay. cool style about everything and I love it. I appreciate that. So uh, comedian, I think that one's pretty self-explanatory. I try to get the yuck yucks in front of strangers for money. So, you know, it's like a verbal prostitute, if you will. I try to get the laughs for... Uh, <laughs> for for that um podcaster i i have uh, a podcast called rules of the rebellion right now as well as a comedy-based one that's called delusional and my rules of the rebellion podcast lends into uh my work as a performance coach and i want to make sure that i'm clear on that because it is somewhat of a diverse you know declaration so majority of my business right now that i do is i actually help podcasters uh start their podcasts with the right understanding of who they're trying to target. It's very difficult to do podcasting if you don't have a way to monetize it. And I've been around in podcasting since 2013. I've executive produced over 1800 episodes for myself and other people. And I've I pretty much figured out the game on how to turn your podcast into something that can make you money. And so I teach people how to do that. And that involves understanding, you know, what their offer is, what they're selling, how to engineer it so that it appeals your podcast and your sound, your look, your feel, whatever appeals to the right uh, avatar, the right listener. And that has opened up opportunities for me to do uh, other coaching opportunities as well. So I have clients that I do business consulting with where they invite me in and I take looks at their marketing to see how they could convert better. I see, you know, how their value ladder is when it comes to what they provide as far as what they're selling um, and then that even has opened doors into some of, uh, and I, I hate this word, but it is what it is. Life coaching type stuff where I, I've, I help people to kind of get their, uh, their ducks in a row and to find more happiness and fulfillment. And I know as a comedian, those words are repulsive, but as a, as a, <laughs> a, a person that cares about being happy myself, like I, I really enjoy that part of my work where I'm able to, you know, help somebody transition from challenges and being out of shape and not having what they need as far as their finances and things and to revamp it so that they've, they're thriving in all levels. So it's kind of what I do. Well, I was introduced to you through your comedy because I, you know, as people that listen to this know, I, I'm involved with wise guys comedy club and that's where I first saw you. So what, what was the genesis of you getting on that stage and yucking it up as you put it? That's a great question. It started for me. Well, let me give you a little, uh, a little bit of backstory. I, as somebody that has done coaching and consulting, I feel that it's, uh, I, I, I seek out those individuals myself. So like I've had coaches and consultants that have helped me along the way as well. And I had been working with this one uh, woman out of Australia who, uh, her main focus is helping people to understand what she calls your primary and secondary personality archetypes. So in the, the, the work that she does, there's basically 12 different archetypes that each individual could fall under. And they have names like the maverick or the magician, the jester, the innocent, um, the alchemist. I mean, there's, there, there's all these kind of odd names, but each one of those you know, plays into how as a person we easily show up and some of the challenges that we have within those same frameworks. And every individual, according to this woman's work, has two of them. You have a primary and a secondary archetype. And my two, after going through her testing, were two of the most odd companion pairs that she'd ever seen. She said that she hadn't seen them in like 20 years of her work. And those oh, two wow. were, one was called the jester, which naturally a jester is, you know, the, the, the guy that cracks jokes. But some aspects of the jester that we don't overlook when you consider what a jester is historically, the jester was always close to the king. So it was a very influential person. He knew a lot of influential people as well as he was irreverent in how he would describe things. And so he was willing to say things that were shocking and that, you know, put people on the back heels, so to speak. 
And the other archetype of mine was what was called the innocent. And it's not innocent in that, you know, I don't ever do anything wrong, but it was more of a simplistic type of thing, like a very simple type. I just like things that aren't complex as far as that. I, I want, I like simple colors. I dress very modern as far as like just, you know, solid prints. I'm, it's a very um, whimsical sort of thing where it's like, let's just make life simple. Let's just be happy. Let's just be good to each other. You know, kind of a very high level sort of ideology. And because of my, my background, I grew up as a, you know, an active Mormon and I served a mission. And even my first marriage, I was, I was married in the Mormon temple. And so I had been leaning in somewhat to the innocent side of my archetypes in relationship to this work as I was learning about it from this, this specific coach and somewhat neglecting my jester side, the comedy side, because it felt irre irreverent. It felt like it was um, disruptive, but yet I was still always having those thoughts where I wanted to crack the joke at the wrong time, or I wanted to make people laugh. Like I thought I loved the idea of making people laugh. And even so much that, you know, I would have friends of mine tell me like, man, you're, you're actually pretty funny. You should try, you know, stand up. And I was, I was scared to do it. And, uh, I ended up watching, this was in, uh, in the, the early, excuse me, late, excuse me, not early or late, just winter, normal winter. It was about March or, or excuse me, February or so several years ago. And I, I stumbled across this documentary that was on HBO that was called the Zen diaries of Gary Shanley. And it was a four hour documentary, two parts and two hours each part. And it dived into the life of Gary Shandling. And I found myself really connected to this individual because not only was he hilarious and oh, he yeah. was a pioneer in comedy, like with the Larry Sanders show and his stand-up and things. He was also, uh, he was a practicing Buddhist. So he was into the whole kind of Zen ideology, which was, you know, he meditated, which back in the 70s and 80s, that was really kind of fringe stuff. That was what the hippies did. It wasn't mainstream like it is now. And being somebody that's been a coach for, you know, a, a chunk of my adult career and seeing this new sort of entry and this, this pull into, you know, stand up and wanting to tell jokes, that documentary really set me up to finally make the leap and to go watch open mics first at wise guys and then finally get on the list because I saw in Gary Shandling an example of somebody that had somewhat of like the two different sides of the personality that I did where it was uh you know I I was both this person that you know I, I meditate actively like I'm, I, I care about you know the softer side of life I want to treat people kind I want to be a good person but I also have this other side of my, myself where I like to crack dick jokes and you know say say bad words and <laughs> <laughs> talk about uh talk about the funny stuff and so seeing gary shandling in that way inspired me and, and that was what really set me off to go do my first open mic at wise guys yeah I knew, i've been meaning to check that out because i'm a big judd apatow fan and i i've heard about that documentary so i it's I, really impactful like it not even if you're not even into comedy that much just to watch the challenges that this person had, because you see the dynamic that he had within his parents and then how he was with his friends and being there in Hollywood in that time, you know, the seventies and eighties, fascinating documentary. I recommend it highly to anybody. It's called the Zen diaries of Gary Shandling on HBO. Well, when, and documentaries when done right, you don't even have to be interested really in the subject. And that, that's what yeah. I love about documentaries. If they're done well, they'll, they'll pull you in. Well, Agreed. Yeah. This, this is one of those, like, cause it, it brings in some of the personal aspects of things. Like there's this moment in there where Judd, who is the executive producer of the show is reading, you know, pieces of Gary's journal and showing an insight into what a, just a tender hearted man, this guy was while at the same time, having to deal with some extremely challenging stuff related to the, you know, the entertainment business and kind of getting squeezed out of some things. And you just see his humanity with how Judd is, you know, describing this man using his own words. It's really, it's quite emotional and it's, it's funny and emotional. Like there's a tapestry of the entire arc of your emotional spectrum as you're watching this thing. Um, and and it, just to go back to, you know, your question about the genesis of me and comedy, I had yet at that point seen something like that before. Most comedians, it seems, don't like to let you in to the idea that they actually have emotions or feelings or that, I mean, every comedian likes to talk about how shitty it is and how much they struggle and how hard they've got it, but they don't, they don't like to talk about their, you know, their quest to be better or the challenges they're facing as they put themselves out there and they get smacked down. Um, you know, they'll talk about bombing in a way that's almost like romanticized, like, Oh, I used to bomb so bad. 
but they don't talk about the, the emotionality of like dealing with that. And you saw, I, I saw a different aspect of that. So for me, I've always been somewhat of a, a copycatter. And what I mean by that is that not that I copy or that like, I want to bite anybody's originality, but I've always thought that if somebody else can do it, there's a, there's a, a roadmap that's left to success. And, sure. you know, talent is obviously extremely important when it comes to certain aspects of succeeding, whatever it is, whether it's sports or entertainment or writing or whatever, but there's other things outside of that that are far more important, even than talent ethic and support and having the right community and, and being in a place where you can, you know, really kind of fall and not you know, have a soft place to land, so to speak. And, uh, all of those, you know, realizations about comedy and the scene and everything came to fruition as I was starting that. And it, it allowed me to make, uh, you know, to take risks with my comedy early on that, um, I think really have helped me. What, what kind of risks? Just being un, unafraid of eating shit. I mean, yeah, it's kind of funny. My very first, my very first set that I did at open mic was horrible. Like it was horrible. It was a, it was a set I wrote about my wife being a Pilates instructor. And I was talking about the Kegel exercise that she teaches people as a Pilates instructor, which is basically the tightening of your vagina through these, you know, flexing of muscles in your pelvic floor. And I told the joke about how, how funny it is that the, the Kegel is named after a dude that was a doctor in the Midwest in the 1800s. And so it's like this whole, and it was just the most dog shit bit ever. It's horrible. Got very few laughs. It was disconnected. I didn't know how to write a joke then. I mean, I'm still struggling to write jokes even three years in, but it just was bad. And, and I just, I didn't let it affect me personally. I just was like, eh, well, this is what it is. And those open mics can be rough. I, I don't go to them often just because the ones I have seen are, are pretty rough, but there are some gems in there. Um, yeah. Like JD recently, he has really, yep. really blossomed. Um, here are some others. He's just a, fu he's just a funny dude. And he has such a great mind for that type of stuff. Like I'm excited for JD to make the, like JD's next leap is going to be the headline. Like oh, he's sure. featured and, and, and as soon as he, it's going to be cool to watch him kind of interweave all the characters that he does and the different ways it, it's, he's a really, not only is he talented, I've seen him do the work. He's, he's one that I could see popping out of the Utah scene at the, in a, you know, near future. And versatile. Cause those characters that he, he was playing through are, are completely different from each other. Yeah. So, um, well, I, I had the, I had the privilege of uh, interviewing Keith Stubbs on my comedy podcast. And he said something about open mic that was really telling. He said the open mic is the great equalizer sure. that it makes a shitty comic seem like he's great and it can make great comics seem like they suck. And the, the open mics have a 50 foot radius that basically, you know, if you're going there and you, if, if you're one of those people that just so happens to have a bunch of buddies in the scene and they're all going to think you're funny and it's going to seem like this raucous sort of you're killing it. And then you get in front of, let's say a weekend crowd and it falls flat. Like that's, you know, that's a tell like you, that means that it's got, you got to be better about connecting with a, an actual paying audience instead of just your buddies in the back of the room. And when Keith said that it really kind of helped me because I don't, I don't know why, but for whatever reason, like it's been one of the challenges I've had in the scene is like really connecting with and making like strong friendships. I have a couple of really close friends in the scene, but the rest, I don't, I guess I'm just, I don't know why. Like, um, and so, you know, I, I don't have that privilege of having, you know, the, the big uh, cheering sections where I'm, I'm, I have to look at the way I perform at open mics a little different. And I've come to appreciate that. It's like, I don't get any freebies here. So if I'm going to have a good set at open mic, I know that I earned that set, that it was a, actually a good set. Um, since, since things opened back up, it's been a few months now. Um, did, has, has there been a fall off of who's been coming or is it, is it the same group as before? No, there's been a, there's been a pretty sizable fall off. Um, I would say there's a good, I'm just guessing by saying this 10 to 15 comics that we haven't seen since COVID started. Interesting. That were, that were weekly regulars before. So after open mics, um, you caught Keith's attention and you're doing some opening and, and you've done one headline show. Um, yeah, I headlined last year. I was supposed to, I was on this, the calendar to headline again, two weeks after COVID started and that I was one of the, one of the, uh, one of the first cuts. Of that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so tell us that journey about uh, being an opener for the big names. 
Okay. So, um, well, first of all, I, I got my very first opening spot was with Miss Pat. And that was a fun one because she's just a savage. And uh, it, it was it was nice because I, I knew that I, if I was to go up and just eat it, it wasn't going to affect the show. Like she was such a savage as it is and really, really funny. And I ended up doing well. And I realized that it was that was the first time when I realized the difference between like an open mic or even like a bar show. Because before my very first opening show at Wise Guys, I had done uh, like I'd done a gig down at St. George where I did 20 minutes down there. And then I had done a couple bar shows around Salt Lake and then to open at the Jordan landing club for a, you know, a headlining famous, you know, legitimate comic was awesome because those people in the crowd are there to laugh. They paid their ticket. They want to be entertained. They're, they're there to have fun. And so that was a really fun experience. And then I kind of got, flung into it for whatever reason. Like I have a lot of public speaking experience in my background. So I have no problem being on stage, especially in front of large groups of people. And Brian Callen, who is still one of my favorite comedians to this day, uh, he was coming to town. And uh, just in passing one time with Keith, I, I jokingly said, you know, any chance I could host that show? Like I was swinging for the fence. I, I didn't, you know. And uh, this was back before he had opened up the lounge. And he's like, Hey, I need help moving this piano thing. So I go to help move. And this is before open mic. And this was even before he had changed the list thing to where it was an email. This is where you had to wait outside for you know several hours. Yeah. And uh, we're moving this piano. And he's like, Hey, thanks for the piano. I'm like, or, thanks for the help. I go, thanks. And he goes, you want to host the Callen shows? And I go, yes, please. So I got to host the Callen shows. And that was a fantastic experience because not only I had seen Brian three times at wise guys before, and I, you know, knew his comedy and was a fan of like, you know, his characters in movies, you know, he was in the hangover as the one dude at the wedding. And then he was even in the Thailand version. And I just, I was a fan of his comedy and to meet him. And he brought one of his openers hit. One of his openers was this guy named Stevie blue eyes who had one of the most fantastic backstories ever he'd been to jail for drug trafficking and his cellmate when he was in jail was george jung the guy who the movie blow was written about oh, like that's wow. the johnny depp plays and so um you know after the shows like we're going out to whiskey street and hanging out and i'm i'm hearing brian tell these stories and i'm hearing stevie talk about this stuff and it was i felt like i was in this like you know fantasy land of like hollywood and stuff with these people that i had only seen you know through screens before and then after that, you know, that was cool. And it was able to, you know, connect and we've kept in touch and things for both Stevie and Brian. And, you know, and then that started off Keith, fortunately, thought that I did a good job hosting. And he would he gave me other opportunities. And so I've been able to host, you know, when Jeff Dye comes to town, I usually get to host that show. Um, you know, I hosted when Andrew Schultz was in town. Uh, Paul Verzi just came to town. He's Bill Burr's main opener. I hosted when he was here. Um, a year, not this last time, but a year before when Tim Dillon was in town, I hosted when he was there. Um, I feel like I've got a little bit of a knack for the hosting thing. And I really enjoy hosting big shows like that for a couple of different reasons. One, I don't know what it is about me and my personality, but I thrive when there's pressure. And so when you're hosting a big show that's sold out and it's a big name comic and everything, like there's a couple of different like things you have to juggle while you're getting ready. You have to go up, you have to engage the crowd, you have to warm them up, you have to get them laughing right out the gate. Like you set the tone as the host. Then of course, you've got to pay homage and respect to the, to the wait staff, make sure that the crowd is reminded to tip and to, you know, treat them right. And then you got to, you know, remember the deal about, you know, where you've seen this comic, what the guy's podcast name is, movies he's been, and then you have to perform and you have to do, you know, your 12 minutes or whatever. And so juggling all that stuff has helped me to become a better comedian and to feel more comfortable on stage. It was a really, really cool moment. Like the last hosting show that I did was the late show on Saturday with Paul Verzi. Um, it was the weekend Bill Burr hosted Saturday Night Live. And like I said, like Paul Verzi is Bill Burr's main opener and they're, they're really close friends. And so Paul is between shows watching Saturday Night Live in the green room with Burr on stage and he's just amped up and I, I'm feeling amped up and I go out and I have a, an amazing set. I'm feeling super strong about it. Paul gets on stage and has one of the best sets of his life, he says. Like he just said that he was channeling Burr. He felt like just super inspired. And I had this moment that really affected me where I walk back in the green room and Keith is there. And if you know, Keith Stubbs, like he's not the most, uh, you know, if you get a compliment from Keith, it's a, 
it's a big deal. Like he usually keeps that stuff close to the chest. And he tells me, and he has this kind of like cocked back look. And he's like, Bryce, I, uh, <laughs> uh, that may have been the best I've ever seen you do. And then he goes through and like tells different aspects of parts of my bits that were great and everything. And it was, so like, he gave me some really valuable feedback and I just was on cloud nine. I'm like, Oh my gosh. And it was funny because JD was there at the same time, you know, JD and our friends. And he's like, Jesus, but now he's now Bryce never going to shut up. You got this thing from God. Like he was joking with Keith about <laughs> I was going to, and here I am talking about it on a podcast. Keith Stubbs, give me a compliment. But um, the another really cool kind of story that I had with uh, just the, the, the idea and concept of just being in the room, like just making sure you're ready, stay ready so you don't have to get ready has been a mantra of mine for a long time. Um, when Andrew Schultz came to town last time, and, you know, during COVID, he's just blown up. He was doing those, you know, tilt your video to the side or tilt your phone to the side videos that just were ridiculously popular. And he's been on Rogan a bunch of times. And, and he's, he's just, he's a really thoughtful dude. I just wanted to see him. And so I asked Keith, I'm like, any chance, you know, there's a spot on the show. Could I do? And he's like, ah, he's bringing his own people, but you're welcome to come and hang out. And so I go downtown and I get there early. It's like six o'clock. I'm rounding the corner by the gateway and I see him and his crew getting out of an Uber. And I'm like, oh, sweet. I get to talk to him. So I go inside. I'm in the green room and he rounds the corner with Keith in the green room. And I'm just like, hey, man, like I'm just my name's Bryce Prescott. I'm a local comic here. Great to meet you. You know, and we just start talking a little bit. And then Keith goes or excuse me, Andrew goes, yo, Keith, I, uh, I know I told you I didn't need a host. Uh, anyway, I could still get one. And Keith just looks at me, and goes, Bryce, you want it? You want to host this? <laughs> I'm like, yes. Okay, here we go. And then at that point, Andrew's like, hey, man, I want to I want to talk to you about some stuff. And so he pulls me aside and him and I talk for about 45 minutes. And he has all these questions about being a former Mormon and, you know, what it's like to live in Utah and, you know, serving a mission and having to like, you know, pedal something that at the time was really important to me and then really being rejected for it and having to deal with that sort of rejection. And, and we had this really, really cool conversation. And then the mastery happened. He goes on stage and he does 20 minutes of brand new material based off of the conversation that him and I had. And I'm like, wow, like that is next level. And it was not, not only was it new, it was so good. Like it was hilarious. And truth be told, there's clips of it on his YouTube. If you go back from the Salt Lake show where he's talking about, he had this funny riff that he did where he's talking about how, you know, women could go on missions too. you know, like that seems a little bit dangerous. You know, they show up to some drug dealer's house or some murderer's house and the murderer's like, thank you, Jesus, you know, but all brand new right off the top of the dome. And I got to see that first up and, and it was cool to see the dynamic of that to see like, cause when you watch guys on stage, you see them performing, you see them in their element as a master, especially these guys that are really, really good. And then when you're a part of a show or opening, you get to see them as people and you get to talk to them and see how their personalities are and if they're cool or not. I just, I just love that. I'm, I'm a big student of the science of achievement of like how to, you know, succeed and get better. And uh, I just soak up all those opportunities when I have a chance to talk to those successful guys. Well, women too, like not just men, obviously, but successful comics. And I've been a fly on the wall of conversations like that. Like um, Joe Rogan, the last time he came, he was kind of schooling a bunch on the comedians of, you know, don't rely on your laurels. Always keep writing stuff like that. Um, David Spade, I think, I can't remember who he was talking with, but it was a similar conversation Spade was having with somebody back in the green room. Um, so it's just, it's really amazing to have that, have Keith and have that kind of exposure to those kind of, kind of thoughts. And it's just really interesting. I, I totally agree with you yeah. there. And well, I, I do have to give props to Keith. Like Keith, Keith has proven himself to be the type of type of club owner. Well, first of all, he loves comedy, which is awesome. And, and to give when people you, background, when, he's been doing it 34. 40 years now for, forever. Oh, and he's hilarious. Like he's, he's, he's always funny. Like I, I've, I enjoy yeah. his comedy, like, you know, seeing clips of him and stuff. I've never seen him do a headlining set live, but last time I wanted to, it had already sold out before I had a chance to get tickets, but he's, he's proven himself to like, when you, when you're respectful and kind to Keith and he can sees, he can see that you're, you know, serious about it. Like he'll, he'll give you opportunities. He'll, he'll help nurture you. Like it's, I have a lot of, I have a lot of respect for that guy 
both as a business owner and as a comic and just as an individual by seeing how he runs it. I mean, you don't, you don't thrive at the level that Keith has thrived for this long being a schmo. Like he's, he's just great. I, I would consider him probably one of the best club owners in the country. Cause I hear about other club owners where, you know, they're alcoholics and they're, you know, trying to get on women all the time and just not right. paying people. It's, but we're, we're lucky we got a good one. So you, you yeah. talked about uh, be, being a former Mormon. You were recently on a podcast called So You Used to Be Mormon. Um, yeah. I haven't listened to it yet, but um, kind of give us to, uh, the journey how, you know, at first when you were thinking about comedy, you know, you were scared of that. And what was kind of the point where you were kind of able to to let go? Well, the, the, the Mormon it, stuff used to have an issue with that because i was always a smart ass as a mormon even yeah i just would feel guilty about it because you know mormons and catholics have a you know they they, they have the corner on guilt yep. <laughs> uh and so that was what i was like and on top of that like in my first marriage um there was a lot of pressure to, to like just really be appropriate and proper and and so you know i didn't i didn't really dive into that and then when I ended I, I was excommunicated and, and then I was, I went through the process to get back into the church. And I talk about that on that podcast. Um, and, uh, you know, the process of getting back into the church was more eye opening than getting thrown out of it in that everything just seemed to kind of illuminate itself. Like what, 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 what? No, 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 no. And it was actually the day that like I got, as they say, you know, your blessings restored is the phrase they use where I was, I was able to go back into the temple if I wanted to. It was that day where I had my biggest epiphanies about what a fucking ruse that thing is. <laughs> so it was, <laughs> it was, uh, it was interesting. And, and as far as comedy is concerned, like back then I didn't have time for comedy. I mean, I was running a real estate company that was, I mean, between 2008 and 2011 and change 2012, we did so much stinking business because of uh, foreclosures and buying portfolios directly from servicers and banks that had already foreclosed. And, and we, did, we did some amazing business, did really, really well. And I was kind of caught up in that life and lifestyle of just being this like kind of big baller, you know, like I had a big fancy, I had 11,000 square foot house and had all the fancy cars and all the, all, all the toys that would come from that life. And I thought that that's what I wanted. But what was happening at the same time is that I was gaining more and more weight. I was becoming more and more of an alcoholic because I had started drinking it during this time. And and, you know, I, I started creating really unhealthy habits for my life and even within my marriage. And it, and it manifested itself in that in 2012, I, I got diagnosed with testicular cancer and lymphoma and, you know, had to, I had my, had to have surgery to get that out. And then I, it just was a big sort of awakening with how I was living my life and not really being happy and and all that. And that, that kind of started the Renaissance for me to where I started changing things in my life and taking things more serious and being willing to do things like, well, try stand up. I don't think I would have, if I'd have continued on that old path, I don't think I would have ever been willing to try. I would have sat back and thought I could do that like an arrogant dude does and then never tried. Um, at that time, were there particular people that like inspired you, you know, to keep going on finding that your true self? you know, after coming out of that side of things? Not really. It was, um, well, so it was, so what I was, so when, after my real estate career kind of transitioned, we basically got legislated out of our business model. The, the, the business we were doing, we were buying, like I said, foreclosed homes from banks and servicers. And then we were, we were reselling them into the market. Um, using a seller financing model. So we were actually helping people get back into homes that they had lost. And, and it was, you know, there was some, there was a feel good factor to it. But when that went away, I um, took my book of business and I had, I had created contacts all over the world with what I had built with my real estate business. And I started seeing, cause I, I have, I'm an entrepreneur by heart. Like I'm always looking for a way to, you know, build something, sell something, you know, whatever. And I was seeing that maybe I should try international commodities. My mission was in Brazil, so I still speak Portuguese. I learned how to speak Spanish through some work I'd done before. I had a, a friend, and a, he ended up becoming a business partner that spoke Mandarin and had connections in Southeast Asia. And so we're like, well, let's try to put together some of these deals. You know, All these countries in Southeast Asia are buying commodities out of South America. Let's see if we can broker some of these deals and try to make a commission on it. And so 
I started doing that. And uh, that was, again, some of the most challenging times of my life because it was the biggest roller coaster. I have this every year, <laughs> every year on June 6th on Facebook, this image pops up that haunts me. And I'm over it now. Like I look back at it with, with gratitude because of what it opened up for me. But it's this image of me in a, in a custom suit looking sharp with a Chinese guy that's at the table sitting next to an Argentinian guy and then another Argentinian guy in the back. And they're signing a contract that I had arranged for the purchase of $305 million worth of soybeans. And my cut on that was going to be eight figures. I was going to get a commission that was going to completely change my life. And so I'm just smiling. I'm beaming. It was like, I got to the top of the hill. And for those of you that have never, you know, even learned or know anything about international deals, it's not just like they just pay and everything like there's banking instruments that come in place. There's laws you got to, you know, pay attention to with taxes with each country. There's all sorts of stuff there that happens. So we had this signed contract and there was still a key, a couple of key pieces that needed to be executed before, you know, everybody to get paid. And I come home from the, to, from, I, I was in Argentina for about six weeks at that time. I'd lived in Buenos Aires out of a hotel, putting this whole thing together. And then, uh, <laughs> I come home a month and a month passes and everything falls apart in that month. So I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to be a, you know, a millionaire many, 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 many times over and then it dies. And I had a similar experience like that probably four different times in the two and a half years of me doing that. So it's like, you have this emotional rush of like, Oh my gosh, my life is going to change. Look what I did. And then it falls apart. And then it, and the last time that happened crushed me. I remember, and this is what actually got me into podcasting. I, uh, was we had paid <laughs> all these old stories, man. I had paid out of my own pocket um, to fly this Chinese group out of China to meet us in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And they told us that if we could show them that we had the product, they would then engage with us and buy it. And so we flew them into Sao Paulo. We were in Sao Paulo. We wine and dine them everything. Well, come to find out, they were there to see four other groups as well, even though we were the ones that paid for their trip and they didn't feel any sort of like morality or, or, you know, associated with them. Maybe we should give these guys the benefit because they paid for us to get here and they ended up going with someone else. And it was pretty much all my money at that time. Like I, I had getting into commodities. I was fortunately I had a little bit of a nest egg I was sitting on and was, you know, burning through that flying all over the world, trying to put this stuff together, flying other people all over the world. And, uh, I got drunk in this bar in Sao Paulo and thought, what do I got to do, man? I think I thought I had this, this real moment where I'm like, I thought I knew what I was doing. I thought, I thought I knew how to make money. I thought I had knew how to do, you know, this level of business and not get burned. I thought I, I thought I could see angles better than I could. And I said, I, I, I need to, I need to figure out how to do that. And on the way down to Sao Paulo on the plane, I had listened to Rogan and I listened to, you know, Jerry Ferrara had a podcast. He was the guy that played Turtle and Entourage. He, you know, his podcast was called Bad for Business. And then Tim Ferriss had a podcast and I was listening to all these, you know, shows. And I was realizing that that could be a platform that would allow me to like interview people or talk to people and learn from them in a non-threatening way without having to buy anything from them, without having to pay them for coaching or consulting. But it was like kind of this new sort of thing. So I came home and within three months, me and a buddy had started my very first podcast, which was called rules of success. I had that forever. So. And that did that evolve into rules of rebellion now? And it's all part yep. of that catalog. Okay. I, I yeah. It started out as rules of rebellion and then 182 episodes into that, about two years into that. Um, I got bored with it because I was really, really good at getting other people business. Like somebody would come on my show and I'd built this platform and we talk about what they would do and, you know, they'd end up getting leads out of it. And I didn't because of how I positioned myself. I had positioned myself lower than the people that I was interviewing. So it wasn't like a banter. It was like, I, I was called one time the Jimmy Fallon of podcasting. And I thought it was a, a, a compliment. And I realized it was actually derogatory because if you know, Jimmy Fallon, like he fawns over everybody. Oh my gosh, you're the funniest person I've ever seen. You're so great. Ah. And then like Jimmy like minimizes himself with his egregious use of, you know, platitude. And then everybody else looks bigger. Well, 
unfortunately I wasn't on a $30 million a year payroll from NBC. I was like a solo podcaster that was, you know, I had a sponsor that was like a nutrition company and stuff. So I wasn't making any money. So I shut it down and I realized, okay, I want to use this as a way to get more consulting business. So I rebranded that into the daily rule and I released five episodes a week for a year. And then I shut that down again after I had gotten to capacity of my business. And then about a year later, I started it up under the rebrand rules of the rebellion. And the whole thing behind rules of the rebellion is that, uh, as I said, I'm a student of, you know, achievement. I want to learn how to achieve most efficiently and then be able to bring people along with me. And so with that, I, I thought, well, um, right now in our current culture, victimhood seems to be a pretty strong pull. People oh, sure. would, they, they, you know, they, 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 glorify even in some ways, you know, their oppression. And I'm like, that's not me at all. Like, even if I'm legitimately feeling some of those emotions, like I'm not going to give, I'm not going to feed them. I'm going to, you know, I consider myself that like, as they say, if it is to be, it is up to me. So I'm like, that must make me a weirdo to like, not want to acknowledge any sort of challenge and to realize that not acknowledge challenge, but like not blame anybody for my challenges and just take it upon myself. And then, you know, to do the things to fortify my own ability to do that, that makes me a rebel in some ways with how things are now. And of course there's like this weird sort of like kind of false dichotomy with like, well, as a rebellion have rules. And if there's rules of the rebellion, it's kind of this play on words, but um, the whole thing is, is it's, it's been taken off, man. Like I've been really surprised at how much growth I've had since the relaunch getting back to, you know, some of the older numbers of my downloads and listens and stuff. Um, and, you know, thanks to you, Dylan, like my new logo and, and marketing suite, you were the guy that did it. And it's, it's gangbusters, man. I get so many, I've got my first run of t-shirts right now being printed to sell later on. And, and uh, everybody loves what you've created. So thank you for that. Yeah. I have really enjoyed working with you. Our, our back and forth of get, getting it just right. I, I really enjoyed that process and thanks for bringing me in and, and you've connected me with other businesses that you're, you're doing podcasts for, and those have been fun to play with. Um, yeah, I've got some more work for you too, because uh, I just brought in a bunch of new clients, so we'll, we'll fill you up here soon. Nice. Christmas is coming, kids. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we've talked about stand-up, we've talked about podcasting, uh, performance coach. Uh, that, yeah. that ties into the podcast too, but where, um, not where, but... Tell us a little bit what more what you can do for people because you mentioned it at the beginning, kind of you yeah. know, as a summary. But so the concept behind performance coaching is this somewhat universal truth that exists that we can't see our own blind spots. That there's certain aspects of how we live our lives, the things we do, where is self-aware. The most self-aware people still have blind spots. They still have things that they can't, you know, see about themselves. And just when you look at the nature of how, you know, your subconscious mind works versus your conscious mind, like that spread is 95 and five. So 5% of what happens within your mind is, is conscious. 95% is sub is up, is, you know, subconscious. So that means that there's patterns and behaviors and all sorts of things that we do that we aren't aware of why we're doing them. And again, I've been a student of all sorts of stuff my entire life, even in my, my college education, where like, I, I love, I love studying human behavior. And it's gotten fun as I've further dived into things like, you know, neuroscience and why our brains do what they do and how those play into the behaviors that we have and the idea of, you know, being asleep, not being aware of what we're doing and, and not being able to observe our thoughts. There's this, there's this point in self-awareness where you reach where you can actually like think a thought and have the emotional connection to that thought through your limbic system, which is your basically your, I call it your mind body. There's the part of your brain that is that holds all the levers for the emotions of anxiety and fear and things. And it's trained passively. It's trained because we don't know why we're allowing certain fears to affect us. And, and uh, same with, you know, actions and circumstances with other people, interactions, et cetera. And as I learned this, a part of this came about because of the people that I was interviewing when I started Rules of Success all those years ago, I started, you know, learning from them and then I would apply them in my life and I would have people that would randomly reach out to me and say, would you be willing to help me with that? Could you help me figure out how I've got this problem that I can't overcome and I, I, I could use some guidance. I could use a coach. 
And so I started doing that. And then I ended up writing a curriculum where I could have like a three month, 12 week program where I help individuals get their shit together between their ears. And then once you've got that handled, you step into your relationships and I teach them some different communication uh, tools and things to really make sure that their relationships are on point, that they're communicating in a way that they take ownership for what their side of it is while empowering the other side to take ownership of theirs and really being able to have difficult conversations that have massive benefits when they're resolved. And then the last part of my coaching is that I, you know, we, we then once you're, once you're on point and your relationships are better, we can go into your business and adjust some marketing things. Well, that's opened doors for me to work really closely with some very, very high powered individuals, some really, really successful companies. And, uh, you know, the idea of being able to be performance coach as a moniker is, I, I, I like that one best other than, you know, life coach or executive coach or trainer or any of that, just because it's like, it really touches on exactly what we're trying to do. What I'm trying to assist these professionals with, which is to increase their performance. And so in order to increase your performance, it includes all sorts of things that are taking away from your bandwidth, that are drawing energy away from you being able to be as efficient as possible in your fitness, in your relationships, in your money, even there's certain aspects of how people handle their money that are, it just you know, affects everything. And uh, over time, I've just, for whatever reason, learned how to do that in a way which has inspired trust in other people to pay me to help them. So I kind of run with it. Very cool. Um, I'd like to get in on that because I, I think I'm screwed up in a few areas where I need to <laughs> <laughs> turn some things up and turn some things off and <laughs> and whatnot. So maybe we can talk about that uh, some other time. Sure. Um, let's see. Glad to. So I mentioned a while back the effects of COVID. It hit com- comedy, you know, right on. It it, it killed it. Um, your your other business aspects. How how did it affect that? It didn't. It actually helped it. When everybody was forced inside, um, it almost became like this running joke that I I never laughed at because it was paying my bills and then some. Like the idea that people were like, well, I guess might as well start a podcast. And then they had no idea how to start a podcast. And so I do know how to start a podcast. And on top of that, I know how to start it right so that you can actually use it to make money and influence and, and exposure. And so that opened the door to that. And then that sort of because I'd already been doing that. I've been doing the podcast consulting for three years. Uh, And so I had an influx of new clients. And then that elevated exposure got me in the door with some really high powered other performance coaches as well, whose blind spot for their clients is helping them to be able to have a platform to share their teachings and opinions and things, which is obviously podcasting. And so it's just this, the irony is that I actually kind of I kind of feel sad for people that complain about 2020. Yeah, 2020 has had its issues for sure. And it's not an ideal year. But just like with everything, like I felt, I felt all along that it's not about what hand you're dealt, it's how you play the hand. And we were play, we were dealt a hand that sucks this year with shutdowns and, and, you know, people are hurting and there's been sicknesses and deaths and all that stuff. But at the same time, we still have to keep living. Like we still have to keep trying. We have to put ourselves in a position that is, we, we got to think about, you know, what about a year from now? What about two years? Like we have to make sure that we're making decisions that are scalable, that are not going to put us in a worse way later on. And so I've taken that to heart and applied that. And uh, I've had one of the best years of my life, ironically. I've lost 25 pounds of fat. I'm in the best shape of my life. My relationship is great. Podcasting is going great. My business is going great. Like, I really can't complain about anything. And with, I don't want to sound arrogant or sheepish about this, but I, I recognize that that was a, a, a result of me choosing to act in spite of the challenges instead of giving into them. Um, but, you know, not to say that if somebody's really struggling, that that's not, you know, I, I still feel for those people. And if I'm able to help them, I want to help them for sure. Yeah, I, I've done a lot things that I wouldn't have done in a regular year, you know, because it gave me a chance to slow down and objectively look at things. And yeah, I, I, I look at, probably not as much as you, but I have looked at it kind of as a blessing in yeah. disguise to kind of evolve myself in a way I wanted to. Um, yeah. Right? I don't even, I don't even consider it in disguise. Like, again, you go back to that example, you know, if, if you've ever played Hold'em, there's no, I mean, 
people can say you have a bad hand and hold them, but people have won the whole pot on a shitty hand. <laughs> they just played it right, you know? Yeah. So I, I use that example. It doesn't, doesn't matter who you are or what hand you're dealt. Like there's, there's a way to play that hand to where you can, you can succeed. For sure. There's too many examples of everybody. I mean, every, any, every, you know, every group of people that has been, you know, oppressed, every group of people that has to deal with systemic issues, like all the stuff that has come out in droves in 2020, each one of those groups still has really successful people in it. So what's the difference? Why, why did those certain individuals succeed while other people's didn't? And it came down to how they played their hand. You know, they chose to give energy to certain things and not give it to other and to take action. And yeah, the bubble, they act on it. Yeah. Now working on these podcasts and the comedy and um, the coaching, what, what situations are most creative for you? You know, working with others, you know, kind of bouncing things off those other coaches and comedians and um, things like that. So for, well, I'll, 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 I'll go coaching first. So the coaching thing, um, sure, it's, it's beneficial to have other friends and associates in the same space that do what you do. And I've, I've, been, I've been blessed to have some of the, just some superstar friends that are other coaches around the world that give me a, a place where I can go and, and be really candid about what I'm wanting to improve, what I'm willing to do, what challenges my, that I've had, all that. And so that's been a creative thing. And I also, I'm an avid reader. Like I read a, you know, a book of a month at least. Um, you know, every, every morning is a part of my routine. I'm reading, you know, at least 10 pages of a, of usually a self-development or a nonfiction book at least. So I could have good ideas coming to my head. I'm a firm believer of, you know, ideas in equals inspiration out. So like, if you give your, your mind stuff to work with, like it finds different ways to connect them and then create something original. And that's helped with comedy too. So like with comedy, I find that ironically, it's not ironic. The biggest challenge that I've had in comedy has been actual like joke writing where put me in a group of friends. I can get everybody laughing. Um, I, I love stand up watching it. I love performing it. Um, but you know, the actual like sitting down and crafting a joke, like my process has been a kind of out of whack. Like I'll get a crazy story from my life and I'll go on stage and just try to flush it out. And that flush out, and I'll rec I record every single set, like every single set I have ever since I started. And I'll listen to it again. I'll even transcribe it to where I can read what I wrote um, and see where, oh, well, that's actually a punchline. And like, I'll do this stuff organically, like with the storytelling that I'll do, like it'll, it'll have, you know, setups and punches. But it's kind of after the fact. And that process is painful because it's like, it means I got to eat shit more than I like to, to be able to get these jokes to come. So whenever I'm able to, you know, really get together with a group of comics and flush that out and to, you know, practice and perform, I, I love that because there is a synergy that comes when you have friends that aren't competing with you for, you know, the best stuff, but they're there just to kind of help you. Then it, the whole group rises up in that way. And I've had, I've had those moments periodically through it, some of the friends that I've made in the Salt Lake scene where we'll, you know, get together at one of the guy's houses and we'll just, you know, start telling jokes, we'll record it. Fortunately, being a podcaster, when you get other comedians on to talk with you, some magic happens. Like there's stuff that comes out of that all the time that you can go oh, back yeah. in and use a bit or a joke or whatever. And so I've used that as well. Um, it, yeah, we've had a handful of comedians on, on this podcast and, you know, I... I don't consider myself a comedian, but I, I can be pretty quippy. So I think I might, sure. you know, someday maybe improv, but just the stories and just kind of, you know, the way they can turn a phrase, you know, after, you know, me or Steve or somebody says something to them, it, it, it's fun to watch like the wheels turn in the, in those situations for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I remember, you know, one of the, I, I love seeing that happen at a high level. One of the, one of my funnest comedy memories that I have was I was on the, uh, I can't remember if I hosted or not. I don't know if I did. When Adam Ray came to town two years ago, it was at Jordan landing and uh, Marcus Hardy was on the show as well. And I can't recall the specifics, but the two of them know each other from, from somewhere back in the day. I don't, I don't know if Adam was on the same season as Marcus, uh, as uh, on, you know, last comic standing, but they, they clearly knew each other and was, and 
they were friendly. And I'm sitting in the green room with Marcus and, uh, and Adam, and they're just, they're off in their own little world riffing about this, you know, jokey screenplay they're going to write for this, you know, sitcom they're going to produce. And they're going through all this stuff and Marcus whips out a Gene Levy impression. And for those of you that don't know Gene Levy, like he was the dad on American Pie. He's the main character in that Shit's Creek show, like Gene Levy. Like he's, he's not a guy that people normally do impressions of. And Adam Ray goes, holy shit, man, that's a Gene Levy. And Marcus goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he breaks it down, like the layers of how he got. He's like, you got to start with this and this, you know, start with this guy's thing. And then you build upon it. And the next thing, you know, and I'm just sitting here like watching an alchemist, like turn, you know, water into metal. I'm like, wow, like that is so cool. And I, I loved just, I still think about that. Like when I hear good impressions, my thought goes back to that moment, listening to Marcus dissect how he came up with his own gene levy impression and i think well what so i start to try to hear that like well what are the pieces of it and i suck at it i mean i'm getting a little bit better just through time and attention but fascinating stuff to see you know high level guys do that marcus hardy is one of the funniest people i think i've ever met let alone see perform like he's just so so good and he's got a lot of stuff that he's cooking up right now that's going to be cool yeah he was working on it before covid and it's going to be cool and hopefully helpful to a lot of people and he'll be on this show someday. He did say yes, but nothing <laughs> scheduled yet. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, uh, bonus questions. Cause I think we've covered all the question main questions. First bonus question is what does creativity mean to you? Creativity, not to overuse this word, but it's, it's a form of alchemy. It's like where you're bringing in a bunch of different things together and then they create this new, completely different thing. And creativity to me is the, you know, the, the root word of it is creation. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a genesis. It's a beginning. It's a spark. It's something that's powerful. I find that the, the people that I'm drawn to the most are creatives. I love people that are just a little bit off and yet they have this brilliant side of them that they can just create cool things um that's comedians i for think sure. that it's what was that <laughs> is that that's comedians for sure a little yeah, bit for off. Sure, right yeah <laughs> well comedy is a form of creativity it's, it's such a weird and misunderstood craft you know like yeah. it's it's funny to me how many people think they can do it i could do that i'm funny I'm like yeah go give it a try homie like it's not like it's so hard and especially to do it at a high level you know i remember um just as a as a quick side story I was talking to to Andrew Schultz after that between the shows on the week the the time that I hosted for him, and I asked him, I go, "How did you do that? You took my, our conversation and you made controversial jokes. Like he said some stuff that was like pretty out there. It was hilarious. It didn't piss anybody off, but it made everybody laugh because it was rooted in truth, and there still was some kindness to it." And I said, "I I want to have the balls to say that type of stuff, but I just don't." And he said, "He goes, he goes, look, man, he's like." you're like a toddler that's just learning how to speak. And when you get into comedy, your grasp of what you're saying is like a, you know, graduate level professor in college. Like you're still, you don't have the the skills to like the, you don't have the vocabulary to understand how to navigate around these things to say this in a way that's that. And, you know, to answer applying that to creativity, creativity as well is a process. You can, you can become, you can have all the rawness of creativity and not have the capacity to express it fully and that's when you have to work at expressing your creativity whether it be joke writing or painting or design or music or whatever like there's one of my favorite books talks about how you know that moment when you have that symphony in your head and you sit down to the piano and you realize you don't play the piano (laughs) and you're like you don't have the way to get it out of your fingers but you hear it in your head it's like that is a part of the creative process too because i think that that's where um mastery of creativity happens when when you're willing to recognize that it's 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 all those things that the thought the genesis the the beginning the creative onus that that but it's also translating that into a skill set that allows it to be expressed beautifully whatever that looks like and i think these days are the best times that people can jump into that where things are slower but the internet you know you can go on there and learn anything if i could have gone back to my design career and you know, taught myself online. I would have saved tens of thousands of dollars, and maybe came out better. But you know, that wasn't the yeah. journey. 
but back back when I was a kid, what was science? You know, the Encyclopedia Britannica. We have Google. Like, there's we have no yeah. excuse not to learn. You go to Google and type. You can type in anything, anything, and it'll pull up stuff that'll point in the right direction. Like, or, you have or, no excuses. Or the drawing direction. Use your keywords properly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, if, if you if, if you're uncertain, use private browser. You'll be better off. <laughs> Don't want to get on any lists or anything. Uh, next exactly. up, it's a lot funner question. Um, who is your favorite Muppet and why? My favorite Muppet, and this covers any Jim Henson creative uh, creation. So Yoda, Dude, it's funny you bring Street, it up because all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I. <laughs> About a month ago, I was really, really high, and I watched that Muppet <laughs> movie with the with Jason Siegel, you know, the, the and uh, Amy, what's her name, Amy Adams, Amy and everything. Adams, and I was yeah. like, I had laughed that hard and forever, man. Like, um, that's a good one, man. I don't. I'm gonna go with Fozzie Bear, you know, because I think <laughs> I think if Fozzie Bear had better friends, he'd be a better comic, you know. He just gets shit on when he tells his jokes, and nobody ever like gives him any feedback on how to do it better. And I think that. <laughs> He could be better. I like Walker, that take Walker. on it. Yeah. I didn't even think about that take on it. But yeah, for sure. And then, <laughs> and then in the movie of your life, who would you like to play you? Ooh. Uh, Ryan Reynolds. Yeah. Yeah, I can see it. Yeah. For me, it's Sean Astin. When I was a kid, I thought Michael J. Fox, but, you know, Michael J. Is John Fox. who? Um, did I say? Sean Astin. So Rudy. Oh, Sean Astin. Yeah. Yeah. Samwise, right? Samwise Gamgee. Yep. I could see that. I mean, not the fro- the Hobbit part, but you know, you got the like Stranger. My things. wife's favorite movie is Fifty First Dates, and he's in that movie as a hilarious role. So that's a that's, oh yeah, that's a good t- one. The pumped up guy. Yeah. Um. So what's next? What's next? <laughs> uh, more of the same, actually. So I yeah. have some pretty lofty goals still when it comes to my comedy. Um, honestly, I've had somewhat of a, you know, when, when my show got canceled for headlining back in March, Keith, you know, when, when we started, when everything started opening back up again in May and whatnot, he's he said, you know, basically when you're ready, let's figure out a date. And I just haven't felt ready. Like I feel a, a heightened level of pressure to have my second headlining show just be that much better than my first and i don't want any of the same jokes that i had in my first one which i I haven't written a full second hour yet so i'm i'm still in that so that's that's on the calendar for the next year is to headline again and more specifically to sell out a headlining show to have it be that i've i've got you know a room full of people that, that love my jokes and that are wanting to be there and to have that experience um, and then with my podcasting and coaching stuff, I've just been, I'm, I'm at this stage where like, I'm, I'm finally bringing on team members now. Like I'm training a guy to help me with some of the podcast editing stuff. And, and it's forced me to have to learn how to do that. Meaning learn how to train somebody to, to take what has already become so natural to me and, uh, really build it out. Podcasting ironically, isn't, uh, it isn't even close to tapping out with as popular as it's gotten in the last three, four years. Like there still is so much blue sky for business professionals to take advantage of it, for creatives to take advantage of it. Um, you know, being that it still is a, you know, a very, very low barrier of entry. Like you just basically need to have a, you know, a couple like a mic and a computer and you can get a podcast going. Um, I like, I, <laughs> I have this, this like commitment to get rid of shitty podcasts because there's so many of them that are out there that suck. And so based off of having, you know, a growth based mindset, I'm like, well, the only way to do that then is just to make better ones. So you make yeah. better shows, you raise the bar and then the crappy ones go away because they can't hang. So that's kind of my deal. I try to make the best podcasts out there. Sometimes the crappy ones still make it through. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're being too harsh on yourself. Yours is good. Yeah. I like yours. Thank you. Where, where can everybody find, um, your stuff what are your urls your socials yeah uh this so bryce well let's see um rules of the has everything it's got every single one of my socials to follow there it's got um both my comedy and my other podcast rules of the rebellion um i'm rebuilding bryceprescott.com and rules of the rebellion.com at their at the time of recording this 
So as it stands right now, just if you go to rulesofrebellion.com, I just have a simple splash page with a bunch of links on there that you can use to, to find me. Um, if you wanted to narrow that down, the easiest place to engage with me directly is Instagram. And it's just my name at Bryce Prescott. And uh, I'm pretty active on there. I do lots of stories and posting and stuff. So. Yeah. Your, your daily walks part of uh, the, the hard 75. Yes. Yeah, well, 75 hard. I did that oh, one yeah. um, and we're done with it. Now we're on phase one of that. So yeah kind of cold nowadays yeah that sounds rough and you're in is that a weighted vest that you're wearing yeah (laughs) yeah it's i got a 35 pound weighted vest on my chest every time i walk if you're in west valley i thought it might be a bulletproof vest but you're you're in the nicer neighborhood than that (laughs) it does kind of look it does look militarized man like sometimes i'll have my like black compression tights from working out and my shorts on and black shoes and then this vest and i'm like really you know black ops i'm gonna go <laughs> and it has like this red ominous writing across it so it just it, it does look like a bulletproof vest it's kind of funny but it's not well thank you bryce i, I appreciate you coming on i've I really enjoyed the past hour talking with you yeah you bet dylan thank you and and for anybody listening to the show if you need design work dylan is your guy i've used a lot of designers throughout my entire career and this guy is sharp he's he's respectful when it comes to how much he costs his fee, he's, he's really, really good. Like if you need anything, logos, cover art, whatever, like hit up Dylan, man. He's, he's one of the best I've ever worked with. At Linen Design LLC on Instagram is probably the best place. There it is. Well, anyway, I hate going out on a commercial about myself, but we're <laughs> going to do it. Thank you, sir. And we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Dylan. See you, buddy. See ya. Podcast is done, man.